electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Last year was miserable for stocks, and so far this year is too. And it won't get better right away, says one of our guests, but he is finding opportunity in the wreckage. And one of his picks is pretty contrarian. We will have the name ahead. Plus one oil bull remaining steadfast. In fact, he says the setup for commodities now could be the best since the start of the super cycle in 2020. You guessed it. Goldman's Jeff Curry is here with more on that. And another blow for Tesla. Deliveries falling short of expectations. The stock now down more than 70% over the past year. So when will Wall Street finally throw in the towel? We'll talk to one analyst who still rates Tesla a strong buy. First, the markets, though. Bob Bassani watching the action at the New York Stock Exchange. Ugly look here, Bob. What happened to our rally? We were strong in Europe. We were strong in Asia. We opened strong here for 10 minutes, and they sold right into it, particularly technology stocks. Some unusual things happening. Take a look at the major indices. It looks a lot like last week. What do I mean? I mean, the Dow is a relative outperformer because of consumer staples and other uh, names that are value-oriented. S&P is kind of in the middle, and Nasdaq's bearing the brunt of the losses. By the way, 10,326. We're approaching a 52-week low. We were there last week, remember? That's what I mean. looks like a lot like last week. So normally in a big down year, the first thing you do in the new year is uh, you buy some of the biggest losers. To a certain extent, this is happening. So Intel and Salesforce were big losers in the Dow. A lot of tech stocks were. They are modest gainers. Walt Disney had a terrible year last year generally, and Nike wasn't a great year either, and they're also upside leaders. Okay, so far so good. The other thing, of course, uh, is that you start uh, selling some of the big uh, gainers of last year. Biggest gainer, of course, were energy stocks. Chevron's down. Okay. Uh, healthcare and consumer staples like Coca-Cola and Procter Gamble were relative outperformers last year. So you would sell them. See you here. It's working. Okay. Buy, uh, sell the losers, buy the winners. You know, that's what you do, opposite side. And so take a look where it breaks down. This is where people are getting a little disconcerted. The two biggest names we talk about, Tesla and Apple, down dramatically. Tesla, as you heard there from Kelly, production issues. Apple had a downgrade from BMP Paribas. There was also reports yesterday out of Nikkei about a lower demand for certain components here, AirPods and Apple Watches. This is out of Nikkei. And so the semiconductors are weak today. They were also big losers. If the theory is, you know, the stocks that are down the biggest should be up, uh, this is not working for the semiconductors today. So you got a little bit of disconcertation uh, out there about the lack of that. Finally, remember January 3rd last year, 2022? That was the high, the all-time high. And in fact, it was 47.96. Look at that, Kelly. We are wow. one. Look at that. Thousand. It's exactly. It's 47.96. We're at 37.96 right now. We got 1,000 points exactly. And that's, do the math there, folks, 21% lower 
than we were a year and ago. And Bob, here's Kelly. what's so troubling. So we, always, we know these things set the tone, right? Like we had all these forces, like you said, that should have given us a bounce here. They've gone. The fact that Tesla, as we move through the, set, the afternoon, is now down almost 15 percent is one thing. People can go, yeah, well, it's a Tesla story. Apple's down 4 percent. Did you just show it at 123? I mean, yeah. it, riddle me that. It's the most widely owned stock in the market. It doesn't have any of the same operating or, or valuation problems that Tesla does. And that, to me, is a much bigger tell. Yeah, I think the Nikkei report on weaker demand, and th- th- none of this has been confirmed by Apple at all. Uh, this was out yesterday, this, this story. I think that's weighing on it. So that would account for why the semiconductors would also be weaker, the potential for, for lower demand. But at, at this point, that's all, this is all speculation right now. We yeah. don't have any confirmation. We used to say that housing is the economy. That's probably still true, but it feels like the iPhone is the economy. Whatever <laughs> happens with that, everything rises and falls. Bob, we'll check in with you soon. We appreciate it. Okay. Bob Asani at the Stock Exchange. Now, the NASDAQ is the biggest loser again today as we kick off the new year. No surprise, based on what we were just talking about. My next guest, though, is finding some opportunities from the collapse in tech stocks. One stock in particular he likes here is Amazon, coming off its worst year since 2000 and still bucking the broader sell-off today. He also says he'll get more bullish on stocks when the Fed stops hiking. Let's welcome in Chris Grisanti. He's chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. Happy New Year, Chris. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. Nice to be with you again. Happy New Year. I want to drill down on today's trading action, which I apologize for doing so because I know you're just a big picture thinker, but this is ugly. What do you make of it? Well, you know, I think we're going to have a tough first quarter. I think, yeah, I'll get constructive when the Fed stops hiking, but the Fed's going to stop hiking for all the wrong reasons in the sense of I think earnings will start to slow. I think there'll be evidence that the Fed no longer needs to hike because things are really slowing down. I think that's going to happen a bit faster than consensus. And and I think the market's starting to look ahead, not worry so much about inflation, and start worrying about corporate earnings. Right. So, you know, this gets us back into the, the old conundrum, which is the two things people say are, well, the Fed can't stop hiking because inflation's so high, and they can't stop hiking because the labor market data is what it is. But you and I know what the future indicators are saying. They're saying both sure. of those factors are going to slow. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. We have to sit around here waiting and pretending like this is not going to catch up with reality. Right. And then what you'll see next is, wow, I can't believe how fast this has slowed. Right. Things have really fallen off a cliff. But but it, it always kind of happens the same way, or at least it kind of rhymes. And, and unemployment will, will start to rise last. Uh, we'll start to see warnings, I think, about corporate earnings with these reports. I think the fourth quarter will be fine, but the prospective outlooks, I think, will be cloudy at best and, and maybe downright pessimistic. And we'll start to get those later this month and into February. The guidance issues and all of that. All right. So you do right. like Amazon here. And this is a company that has seen it's probably its biggest revaluation since dot com. Um, why do you think it can or do you think it can withstand some of the forces you're talking about? Yeah. So, yeah, you and I are negative on the on the near term market, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some stocks that have fallen so much that they they really discount most of the bad news. And I think Amazon's a perfect example. So Amazon has fallen so much, about 50 percent from its highs, that it's now um, selling for uh, the same price to sales multiple it did in 2015. But if you think about it, the sales now are more than half services. You've got AWS, you've got Prime, you've got advertising. And those sales have much higher margins than the sales back in 
2015, which were mostly merchandise sales. So yeah, it's the same multiple, but it's actually worth a lot more. And, and wow, and it's an eight-year low on that measure. Now, the other thing that's terrific about Amazon that I absolutely love is they have doubled sales since 2019. Of course, that's the big pandemic bump. Wow. But they haven't given those back. There's lots of other companies, Peloton would be the poster boy for this, right. where, sure, they had a big pandemic bump, but their sales are now declining. Amazon sales will grow less quickly, but they're still going to grow. They, they're going to grow about 10% this year, a little less than that next year, even after this doubling of sales. Yeah. And the, yet the stock is down 50%. They really have a cost problem, Kelly. It, and if they can get that under control, I think we'd be real winners with the stock. Great point. Maybe inflation will solve some of that if it comes down quickly. It's amazing to see their Ford PE at 65 while Apple's is at 20. Do you want to just offer a quick comment on Apple, Chris? Because I want to hit another sure. quick stock with you. But the Apple's PE sure, is now look, under 21 for a company yeah. that... You know, market cap under two trillion, a superlative company by all accounts, right? I would think you'd be up here pounding the table on owning Apple. Why aren't you? Well, two trillion used to be a whole lot. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's fallen slightly under two trillion, but it's still a lot. And and I guess I'm old enough to remember when when Apple it wasn't that long ago. It was 2016-17 when, when Apple sold for 12 times earnings and was really thought of as a as a hardware company. Now I get it; they've got lots more services and it's the most important uh, electronic device in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, you know, a multiple in the mid 20s for that, and the growth on an average year. In, in, in terms of sales and things, is, is not over 10%. So it's relatively low. So, you know, the, the glass is really being seen, at least for the last couple of years, as half, more than half full. And now I think we're, we're kind of coming more pragmatic. So, well, so I, I don't think Apple is a screaming buy here. I think it's a terrific company that that's finally feeling some of the, of the, of the effects they, that other companies have already felt. If they but it's were, important. Well, let's I'm, I'm sorry, Ken, let me just finish this. Sure, it's sure, go ahead. that Apple fade because the market leaders have to give up the ghost before we can really set another leg to a to a better bull market ahead. Oh, interesting. So you don't you aren't even disconcerted. You're kind of saying this is part of the, the process we need to see play out. Yeah, it's just like the last domino to fall or maybe one of the last. I, I was going to say that if Apple wanted to stop the whole stock market sell off, maybe they could just come out and give us some, you know, 30 percent growth figures for services or subscriptions as a service or something like that. And, and sure. wouldn't you say that would turn sentiment around? Yeah, I, I sure would. And, and then the good thing about all this negative news is, is that, as you put it, there, there's a lot of dry kindling. So, so a little piece of good news from Amazon, from Apple, from Google could, could really, you know, catch the tech market at least back, at least for the moment. But, but I do feel strongly that tech is not going to be the market leader for the next couple of years. We've seen that movie. It's in the rearview mirror. I think we should look more towards the quote unquote real economy than the digital economy. All right. So finally, I have to ask you about this before I let you go, because you and I have talked about the home builders sure. and the housing cycle and all the rest of it. Stanley Black & Decker, am I right, is one of your picks. Why? It is. Why? Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I like stocks that have what I call the gag factor. So <laughs> you explain it to somebody, they go, oh, how could you like that? It, it, I, I like to say uh, Black & Decker is getting hammered. It's down from 200 <laughs> to, to the low 70s. So it's down about 65%. Look, F folks are buying less hammers and, and nails and drills 
than they were before. Uh, and again, it's a pandemic hangover. Black & Decker put a lot of inventory out there. They've got some serious inventory issues, but those will go away. This is a 100-year-old company that's, again, selling near a record low of price to sales. Um, I like it. There's no good reason to buy it today. But I think if you look out a couple of years, you're getting, you know, a, a historic company at a historic bargain. The gag reflex. It's like you called yeah. it before I even did it. It was amazing. Chris, great to check in with you. Uh, we really appreciate all your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Good to be with you. Chris Grisanti with MAI. All right. My next guest continues to believe the Fed is making one policy mistake after another and will be forced to stop tightening and even start cutting interest rates mid-year. He says the 10-year yield has peaked. Bonds are a buy here. Joining me now is Kamal Kumar. He is president of Kumar Global Strategies. It's great to see you, Shri. So lay it all out here. Good morning. I mean, Happy New Year, Kelly. Happy New Year. And maybe you heard part of what Chris Grisanti said. He, he shares a similar view. He thinks they will have to quickly pivot once they see corporate earnings start to drop. What do you think? I think when corporate earnings drop, when unemployment goes up, or when the strong dollar turns out to be a big hit on U.S. companies, any one of those can, uh, can do it, Kelly. Most importantly, 2023, we are entering the election campaign year. Uh, right now, there is the election um, of the House Speaker going on right now. All of this is going to have a major impact on the, what the Fed is going to do. Powell has already got a lot of criticism for his actions from senators and representatives. And I don't think he and his colleagues can continue with rate increases much further. It has nothing to do with economic policy. It doesn't have so much to do with inflation, which will remain higher than projected. But yet, he will stop increasing, maybe cut interest rates, for the simple reason, it's a politically more appropriate thing to do. Okay, politically more appropriate. Um, let's boil this down to what investors should do. I mean, do you agree that people can kind of start dabbling a little bit in stocks now, Shri? What about bonds? Uh, it sounds like you see a, a slowing economy. Could make them a buy here as well? Until recent, let, let's take it in two or three steps, Kelly. Until recently, both equities and fixed income were a bad buy. Because of stagflation, equity prices came down and bond yields went up, so you could not find relief in either asset class. So right now, the change that has taken place is that bond yields have peaked first and equity prices have not bottomed yet. With the result, you have a little bit of elbow room. You have ability to rest in bonds, and I think that's going to be good for the next few months. Also, look at alternative assets look at opportunities to invest over the next five years. I've talked about globally diversified real estate as a way to uh, put your money into mm. and not worry about the imp immediate impact on equities. But equities in the short term are going to take a hit. And I can't see any way that you can get relief from that. So you say, I mean, when you say a hit, what, how much further do you think they are, are, you know, are we talking about? And what makes you so certain? Uh, two or three things. One, I've been saying for a long time we are headed to stagflation. So what's going now, going on now is not at all surprising. It is exactly the path which the Fed has uh, led us to. They misjudged inflation, and now they are overdoing the tightening, and together they, have to, they are causing a recession. So that's why I feel so certain. Timing. Look at the bond market, the yield curve, from two years to 10 years, as well as three months to 10 years, 
have remained, have become very inverted. The 2 to 10 inverted in early July, and it inverted to minus 84 basis points in November. And that's the most we have had, Kelly, since the early 1980s. Sure. We didn't have that kind of an inversion even in 2006, 2007, ahead of the 2008 crisis. That tells me that the recession is coming about the middle of 2023. Mm -hmm. A related issue, the yield curve, both the 2 to 10 and as well as the 3 month to 10 year, have started steepening in right. the last two weeks. We just showed that, yep. And, the, and that steepening in turn suggests that the bond market is anticipating a recovery after the recession. The bond market is far ahead even before the recession begins, quick, it anticipates a recovery. Quick final question. And I know there's people at home just sort of banging their heads on the table going, great, I guess I can buy bonds, but this all sounds pretty horrible. Shree, what can the Fed do right now? If they, could they cut rates, I, you know, come out and just cut rates at the next meeting? I mean, you know, and they would never do that for all the reasons that we know they wouldn't do. But is there a way of avoiding the outcome that you're describing? What, what could they do here to, to turn policy around quite quickly? Uh, they cannot do anything that is perfect from a policy viewpoint, which is to continue increasing interest rates until they get to a 2% inflation target. They're not going to reach it. So what is the Fed going to do, not what it has to do? What they are going to do, I think, is to wait for inflation to come down to about 4%, 4.5% on the CPI. Wow, yeah. And, once it, and then declare that as victory and go home. When you lose the war, there is no better way to do it than to say that you actually won and leave the battlefield. <laughs> and that's what it's going to do. And that's what is important to investors. That will be good for equities at that stage. And the bonds would have already uh, had a capital gain from now until then. And they can switch over from bonds to equities. Uh, th those wow. are the various opportunities they have in front of them. You know, I listen to you and I go, you know, maybe I understand why we're having such an ugly start to the year. Shree, thanks for your time today. We'll check back in Thank soon. Thank you very much, Kelly. Good to be with you. You as well. Shree Kumar with Shree Kumar Global Strategies. Down, down about 240 points. Coming up, Goldman's head of commodities, Jeff Curry, will join us with why he still believes this is the most bullish environment for commodities since late 2020. That is next. Plus, Tesla is tanking after missing the street's estimates for deliveries. The stock is down almost 15% now. One analyst sticking with the stock saying a buyback could be around the corner. He'll join me to make his case. As we head to break, here's a look at the way the market is trading this afternoon. The Nasdaq leading with a 1.5% drop nearly. The S&P down a percent, a thousand points lower from where we started off 2022, as Bob Bassani pointed out. And the Dow down 235. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. 2022 brought investors a lot of pain. Unless you were invested in energy, the energy sector ended the year as the only one in the green, closing out with record gains of nearly 59%. Oil not gaining today, though. WTI and Brent both down more than 3% as the sell-off intensifies. But my next guest remains bullish. His bear case for Brent is 125, and he says the setup for the broader commodities complex is the most bullish since the 2020 super cycle began, even though oil prices collapsed spectacularly in the back half of last year. Joining me now is Jeffrey Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs. It's great to see you again, Jeff. Welcome. Great. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. So where are we on the pension fund barometer of them taking your call versus not taking it these days? They're not taking it. People <laughs> just do not believe the story. And, you know, I, and I think that, that, that that's important here because people think it's over with. They do not believe in the persistency of it. I think it's important to go back and go, what caused the sell-off in the second half of last year? One, Russian disruptions did not materialize. Two, um, you had rolling lockdowns in China um, due to the COVID. And then three, you had 325 basis points of rate hikes and a strong dollar in the second half of yeah. the year. You put all three of those together, that created a 30% sell-off. And by the way, you pointed out energy was up 60% last year. Commodities more broadly were up 26%. But that's why people don't believe in the story. So you're probably going to ask, what's changed? Everything is changing. Let's start with Russia. You're starting to see evidence of the sanctions beginning to bite. Um, where we've seen exports out of Russia beginning to roll over recently. And when the product um, you know, restrictions occur in February, that's going to get larger. Second, we look at China. You're seeing a rebound in mobility, um, bookings for uh, holidays, um, subway ridership. All of it's beginning to show a, a, a rebound. Then we look at Europe. PMIs rebounding, gas prices off, Indian PMIs rebounding. So the overall picture out there sequentially looks much better. And I'm not going to belabor the supply story. I've come on here and made those supply arguments before. You know, before what we need is sequential demand growth, and we're seeing evidence of it. So I thought you had the best kind of illustration of anybody out there when the Fed stimulus and global stimulus really hit to explain why we were seeing this massive inflation. And your point was, you know, we're, we're putting dollars into the hands of consumers who are going to buy tons and tons of things. And this isn't, you know, when you just hand it to the wealthy and they buy stocks and asset prices go up, you know, this is, like you said, I think we, said we were running out of microorganisms. There was some, some way you had of phrasing it that was so apt. And I wonder if, if what happened was the Fed heard you and said, you're right, and we need to slam the brakes on this because we're going to literally see shortages of everything everywhere, and now they're running that script in reverse. I mean, that's a pretty powerful thing to fight, and it doesn't look like that tightening impulse is going away. Absolutely. I think you, you said it perfectly. You know, I, I, another way to say it is, what is inflation? Too much money chasing too few goods. What happened at the end of last year? Well, we still had too few goods, but we didn't have too much money. Um, you know, the best way to just to, to color how significant was, you take the yen before this recent BOJ action, 
you know, we started last year at 100, it went to 150. That means there was 50% fewer dollars to chase oil and broader commodities. And so that's precisely what happened in the second half of last year is the money supply that could chase these commodities was dramatically reduced. Exactly. And we see the charts now, the money supply is falling off a cliff. It's going way in reverse. So I feel like, why would I want exposure to commodities until that story ends? It kind of is what our opening guest said. You know, until the Fed starts to allow some kind of expansion uh, on the balance sheet or loosening of financial conditions, it feels like commodities should be under pressure. All you need is for it to stop and abate. You don't need it for it to actually reverse. You know, you go back to what happened after the rate hikes in, you know, 04 through 06. You know, by 07, you ended up having a massive rally in commodities because of two things. The, the Fed stopped hiking and you had stimulus out of China. What do we potentially have in 2023 is, hey, you know, terminal rates. And I don't want to get the argument of where that terminal is, but right. they're likely to slow down and they're likely to hit something called, you know, something akin to a terminal at the same time. And here's the key point. China largest commodity consumer in the world, largest oil importer in the world, second largest economy in the world, starts to stimulate, rebound, reopen. That's going to put a lot of pressure on the goods markets. Do you think basically it's a coiled spring that the moment the Fed even signals they're going to back off, that we will see these prices shoot higher? Because it's amazing that as this anticipation builds, and as Shri Kumar pointed out, bonds are already pricing in kind of the action you're describing, and yet oil's, you know, falling another 3% today. It doesn't seem to have any feeling that, you know, that demand increase or that financial conditions uh, impulse is coming. Well, I, when you look at the decline in oil and commodities, it's pretty much in line with the strength in the dollar that, that we're seeing today. There's no real news out there. So, you know, you, you do need to have people be you know, confident in the rebound of ex-U.S. growth, because that's what's going to weaken, you know, that dollar and create that stimulus and confidence for you to buy not only oil, copper, and the rest of the commodity complex, they got to believe in that. And they've been burned so much over the last six months, because I've come on here going, hey, fundamentals are tight, market keeps going down. So they're not going to be the first ones in. They've got to see a rebound. And what could be the catalyst is you have a lot of rebalancing happening over the next several weeks. You're seeing the evidence of that in, you know, in terms of, let's say, the big, you know, BCOM, GSCI indices. You look at the CTA indications of trends, they're right at the edge. If this thing switches, Mm -hmm. you get that buying in there, that technical buying, then you start to see this market move higher. But most, you know, going back to your initial questions, are people taking my call? No, they want to see that rally first (laughs) before they're going to take my call and they're going to jump in here. And we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks as we go into the beginning of the year. But that fundamental story for commodities, it's obvious. It's pretty rock solid given, you know, the rebound in in Chinese activity, the uh, mobility, the fact that we're seeing Europe PMIs rebounding, your two big weak points Mm. starting to show a positive turn there. Interesting. Great stuff, Jeff. It's always good to see you. Thanks for your time. Great. Thanks for having me. Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs. Speaking of Goldman, a quick programming note. Brian Sullivan will be live in Miami at Goldman's Global Energy and Clean Tech Conference on Thursday. He's got a big lineup of guests, including the CEOs of Chesapeake, Sunrun, Chenier, and Pioneer. Perfect time to hear from all of them. Dow's cutting its losses down 160. Coming up, Republicans officially taking control of the House today, and the vote for the speakership is underway. We'll have the latest on the GOP infighting and whether Kevin McCarthy will be victorious. And as we head to break, here's a look at the 
Dow heat map with Apple by far the biggest lagger down 4%, pretty even split among the rest of the stocks, though. Uh, as you can see in the leadership today, Disney rebounding with a gain of about 1%. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We started with a decent tone this morning, quickly turned negative. The Dow was down 300. It's cut those losses to a loss of 175. The Nasdaq is still down 1%. Here are some of the movers, a lot of them in the tech land. Apple officially falling below $2 trillion in market cap for the first time since March of 2021. The stock is down 4% today, trading around 124 bucks, lowest level since June of 2021. Here's a look at where the rest of the mega cap names stand. Microsoft, $1.8 trillion. Alphabet, just over $1.1 trillion. You can see uh, those market caps listed there. Amazon, not even part of the trillion dollar club anymore. Here it is at the bottom, $864 billion in Alphabet, still at around 1.1. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Happy New Year to you. Here, folks, is your CNBC News update at this hour. Former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried has arrived at a Manhattan federal court where he's set to face the charges that include cheating investors out of billions of dollars. SBF expected to plead not guilty. Bankman-Fried has insisted that he did not commit fraud and was unaware that customer funds were being used improperly. Meanwhile, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin still in critical condition after suffering cardiac arrest on the field during last night's game. Fans have flocked to a GoFundMe that Hamlin had set up in 2020 to raise money to buy toys for children impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The fund has just crossed $4 million in donations. A chilling scene last evening. Attorney General of the U.S. Virgin Islands, Denise George, was fired just days after she filed a lawsuit accusing J.P. Morgan of facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking scheme. Uh, Governor Albert Bryan did not provide a reason for relieving George of her duties, though local media reported that the governor was not informed of the lawsuit before it was filed. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, I will see you soon. Still ahead, it's been a rough ride for Tesla in 2022, and we're not off to a very good start now. The stock down almost 15% today, just off that level right now, on those disappointing delivery figures. But my next guest is sticking with the trade. He's going to talk about buybacks and some other reasons why next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tesla just closed out the year with a 65% loss, and it's down almost 15% just today. The company, dealing with production halts in China, steep vehicle discounts, and Musk's controversial Twitter takeover. On top of all that, Q4 deliveries for the EV maker just came in below analyst expectations. Still, our next guest remains bullish on the stock, maintaining his strong buy rating through it all. Let's bring in Garrett Nelson, senior analyst at CFRA. Garrett, welcome. The hard thing about talking to you about it now is that if you're right to be bullish, it is a better buy now than it was 70% ago. But what just happened to this stock? And your own estimate for deliveries, I think, was 435,000. They came in at 405. How weak is demand, really? Sure. Thanks for having me. 
Um, that's really the the big uh, thing that's weighing on the stock is um, this is was the third straight quarter in which Tesla's production has exceeded its delivery. So, you know, it's built some inventory, which help explain some of the announcements they've had about extended downtime at the Shanghai factory. But still, we think uh, this is an overreaction. Um, it was a record high quarter in terms of deliveries. Um, we think there are catalysts ahead uh, in terms of a potential uh, stock buyback announcement of the magnitude of five to $10 billion, we think. Um, that we know that the, the cyber truck is coming at some point in the next three or four quarters. Um, that model has uh, a record high backlog in, in terms of any forthcoming EV model. Uh, upwards of one and a half million units uh, of orders have been placed. Sure. And also, uh, starting on January 1st of this year, the lower price versions of the Model 3 and Model Y became eligible for the for $7,500 uh, federal EV tax credit. So, you know, given the recent sell-off which in EV uh, uh, equities in general, not just Tesla, but names like Rivian and Lucid, which have declined by much more, uh, we view this as a buying opportunity here in, in Tesla. So, I mean... I... I wonder, though, if the criticism that they are all talk and no action, I mean, they've done a fabulous job with the existing models, getting it up to speed, sort of giving us the template for what an EV maker uh, in the U.S. can do over the past decade. But now people are starting to want more. You know, they feel as if they don't have a lot of options. It takes forever to get these vehicles. Now there's a question about how much demand was pulled forward uh, with the pandemic and how much is, is still out there. And there's a lot of people with a little bit of buyer's remorse because they're just not used to the Tesla interface and maybe struggling a little bit with that. W what would you say about these demand concerns? Maybe the EV tax credit will be somewhat of a catalyst, but what kind of reset do we need both for EPS this year and for total deliveries? So we're still expecting more than 40% EPS growth this year over last year. Uh, Tesla is coming off a year in which it posted, you know, more than 40% volume growth. What they really need is to bring the Cybertruck to market as fast as possible. Yeah. Uh, so if there's any way they can expedite that, um, you know, it's it's been uh, since March of 2020 when they put out a new model, the Model Y. Um, you know, aside from the Semi, which they just recently rolled out. So we think they just need uh, to, you know, that new product to get people excited. Uh, about Tesla once again. But, we, you know, as far as the inventory build and some of the demand-related concerns, Tesla is not alone. Other automakers are suffering from the same thing. Sure, absolutely. And I would add, the Fed has been probably the single biggest force in this stock, other than Elon himself and the whole uh, Twitter debacle. So for them to really turn things around, would, do we need a change of narrative on the Twitter story? And what is your thesis about stock buybacks? Yeah, so we think the the narrative on the Twitter story is changing, and you know that is really investors want to see Elon Musk take a step back and assume uh, more of a chairman's role to find a CEO for Twitter because um, clearly it's been a huge distraction for him, and, and 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 so he's on that path. We think he's searching for for a CEO right now, and then the buybacks they've alluded to uh, that they could announce a buyback. Um, you know, sort of oh, that five to ten billion dollar type magnitude, um, you know, at, at some point in, in 2023. And so we do think that's coming. Tesla's balance sheet is very strong. Uh, the credit rating was just uh, raised to investment grade by S&P. And they're still generating plenty of free cash flow. So 
we really think a lot of these recent concerns are, are overblown. All and right. so we view it as a buying opportunity. They got to get the cyber truck going. That, that's your message. No, I take all your points. Garrett, thanks for joining us today. It's good to uh, see you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Garrett Nelson, CFRA. Still ahead, the Republicans are back in power in the House, but the party is divided about who should hold the speaker's gavel. Leader Kevin McCarthy making a full court press, offering up unprecedented concessions in his quest for the speakership as his opponents dig in. We'll head to the Beltway for the latest in that fight and its implications for markets next. Welcome back. The 118th Congress is now in session, and it's a contentious start for the House. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy warning there may be a battle on the House floor for the speakership as some members of his own party refuse to vote for him. Let's get to Elon Moy in Washington for the latest and the implications, Elon. Well, Kelly, that vote is now wrapping up, and California Republican Kevin McCarthy does not have the votes that he needs from his own party to become Speaker of the House. Now, that means that this will likely go to a second round of votes for the first time in over, in just about 100 years. Now, earlier today, McCarthy laughed off questions from reporters on how he intended to secure this position. He said that he is ready to fight, to win, and he's not going anywhere. We may have a battle on the floor, but the battle is for the conference and the country, and that's fine with me. Now, Kelly, even if he does eventually secure the position of speaker, how he governs is going to be defined by this battle with House conservatives. There were last-minute negotiations. I'm sure there will be more talks to come later on today. But one of the things that his opponents, including the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, Scott Perry, had been asking for are votes on things like a border plan, on term limits, on a balanced budget, as well as something called the Fair Tax Act, which would eliminate the IRS, get rid of the federal income tax and impose a national sales tax instead. So these are some of the things that are on the table. Ultimately, this is a political battle that could end up shaping the types of policies that House Republicans pursue. But Kelly, I can tell you earlier today, there was some frustration from moderate Republicans who say they want to restore fiscal sanity in Washington, but they can't do it while there are so far 19 of their party members gumming up the works. Wow. We normally have this done by now. Uh I don't want to say unprecedented, but unusual. Elon, thanks. Keep us posted. Elon Moy in Capitol Hill. Coming up, it wasn't a very happy holiday for Southwest customers as nearly 16,000 flights were canceled last week. Southwest pain was one private jet company's gain, though. We have those details next. And uh, we'll keep an eye on markets. The Dow is down 300 points or so at the lows today. We're down 189 as we try to avoid the same fate as last year, starting off on a down note for all the major averages. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Despite a busy travel season, airlines are mostly lower over the past week, with Southwest in particular down more than 5% after canceling thousands of flights due in part to outdated systems. Southwest in total canceled nearly 16,000 flights during the Christmas week, sparking outrage among customers and giving a boost to some private jet companies like my next guests. Joining me now is Tom Smith. He is the co-founder and CEO of SetJet. Tom, welcome. Thank you for having me on. What kind of boost did you see or, or scramble, if I should call it that? Yeah, well, we're based here in Arizona, so it was one of the top cities that was affected by the cancellations. And we saw almost 100% increase in our website traffic and a 30 to 50% increase in bookings because people are frustrated. And they're looking for alternatives like SetJet 
to travel and get back time. That's their most valuable resource. And, and uh, we, we try to do that through our services. Granted, you know, flying private isn't probably the first thing most people think of when they're going, OK, I'm, I can't go from Southwest to a private jet. How, how much uh, more expensive is it for some of your flights? Well, you hit the nail on the head. You can fly with us for $750 a seat, which is unprecedented for private jet travel. And that's the big differentiator we're bringing to the industry. Instead of spending millions to buy the jet or tens of thousands to charter, we sell a seat on our flights here in the Southwest that are, uh, you know, and that's what makes us the big value proposition for our members. $750 is, is pretty reasonable, except that, you, you know, people can't probably do that all the time. I, am I right that you guys have a membership model as well? How does that work? And What's the approach here to turn what might have been a one-time demand boost into something more sticky? Well, we've been flying for three years. We've done over 5,200 flights, and we have over 5,300 members. And it's $100 a month to be a member, and then they, then they can book a seat on our flights for $750. And that, again, value proposition is very similar to a business class or first class seat or some last minute uh, economy tickets. And that's what makes it such a compelling business model. Uh, and that's why we've seen the success and the growth over the last three years. And yet you're dealing with some of the same issues the traditional airline industry is, which is lack of pilots. Is that right? That's correct. It's the, the industry's been facing it for years. Obviously, the pandemic exacerbated the problem, but trying to get pilots through the training and then uh, keep them current, you know, and bring in new pilots at the same time, it's just an issue that we're all facing. But we work very closely with our operator to make sure that we have crew in training and that we don't have those impacts. But it's certainly something that's going into the planning and affecting everyone. How do you assure ensure the safety of these flights, you know, at a time when we're all used to the tremendous headache we go through at the regular airports. And as you're trying to open this up uh, to more travelers who might not have flown private in the past, what's that process look like? How do you keep people feeling safe and secure? Yeah, and it's our number one concern is safety. And so the operator we work with is Platinum Argus rated. It's the highest safety rating they can have, which looks at maintenance, flights, training, and everything. Only 3% of operators have that. So that's why we selected this operator. And that's why we ensure our members that the flights are operated as safely as possible and reliable for them. What, what, if I understand you're a pilot yourself, I mean, when you watched the Southwest meltdown last week, what were your thoughts as both a, a business leader, a, as a fellow pilot? I mean, what should they have done here? Well, I, I've, you know, I wasn't there, so I can't tell, but certainly the systems were behind, you know, their model is built on speed and having quick changes when they land. And when you have a weather storm of that magnitude come in, I think maybe ahead of time, they could have done some cancellations and preempted it because you're gonna have to de-ice the aircraft, right? So you're gonna have extra time needed to get the planes ready to fly. True. Uh, and then they just had the whole conglomerate of everything come together for a perfect storm that led into the meltdown. I'm guessing you guys are not using a telephone system for your uh, technology. Yeah. Uh, no, we're not using it. We're, we're, uh, we wrote our own proprietary software, and, and uh, we try to keep up on top of that. All right. Well, Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Tom Smith, co-founder, CEO of SetJet. Social and streaming stocks on the move. Julia Borson has a market flash. Julia? Well, social stocks are split right now. Shares of Meta, they're up more than 3% on growing talk of a regulatory crackdown on TikTok. Congressman Mike Gallagher compared TikTok to fentanyl on NBC's Meet the Press Sunday, advocating the ban on TikTok from government devices be expanded nationally. And RBC saying that this year they do expect digital ad growth to outperform overall advertising growth. You see Meta shares up over 3%. Meanwhile, Pinterest shares, they're off about 
about 5% on a Guggenheim report with a neutral rating, saying that traffic to the platform declined for the past two months. Snap shares are also lower, down about 2.5% on another Guggenheim note with another neutral rating, saying that while they see international growth momentum, they also see some softness here in the U.S. And take a look at Roku shares. They are off about 3%. You also see Fubo TV shares off about 5.5%. This after an Empire analysis forecast that TV industry ad spending on content was slow dramatically to 2% down from 6% last year. Now, Netflix shares, they were down earlier. Now they're pretty much flat because, of course, the lower content spending could hurt Netflix's subscriber growth. It could also help bolster Netflix's profitability. Empire said that economic headwinds would force Netflix and the traditional broadcasters to rethink their content spend. Back over to you. Surely would. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Still ahead, mortgage rates receding in recent months, but still twice as high as they were a year ago and may yet climb again. But potential home buyers may get a break somewhere. We'll tell you where next. Welcome back. We all know mortgage rates have doubled over the past year. After a brief reprieve, they could be poised to climb once more. Diana Olick has that story. Diana? Well, Kelly, mortgage rates dropped back in November and early December, but ended 2022 on a high note. The average rate on the 30-year fix had swung nearly a full percentage point lower from around 7.25% to 6 quarter. But by New Year's Eve, it was back over 6.5%. Prices have fallen since June, though, but are still higher than they were a year ago. So for the buyer of a median-priced home, today's mortgage rate translates into a monthly payment of about $2,100 without taxes or insurance, which is a 63% increase from a year ago. And that's according to Realtor.com, whose chief economist, Danielle Hale, predicts rates will head over 7% again this year and end the year at 75 Now, on the bright side, there is much more supply, 47% more than a year ago at the end of November, still slightly below the historical average, but it's translating into a slower, less competitive market. Homes are taking an average of about 56 days to sell. That's 15% longer than a year ago. And now the home builders have been pulling back. And you see the home building ETF is down about 26% year over year, but off the much sharper lows from last June when rates first went over 7%. And the most recent sales report we got on new construction from November contract signings showed a surprising bump up. So Kelly, maybe that's the good news for the new year. Happy New Year. Yeah, exactly. When, Diana, does the spring selling season really start to set in? I mean, when when does all of what you're describing translate into a make or break uh, year for really the housing market? Okay, so the unofficial start of the spring housing season is President's Day weekend in February, but it really doesn't get going until March and April. The big question is going to be, will we get new listings? Because there are more listings on the market now, but a lot of them are pretty stale. They've just been sitting around, and that's why we have so many listings now. So we want to see fresh listings, and we want to see what that price point is going to be. We just got another new report this morning showing prices in November weakened even more significantly. So if prices continue to come down, the question is, where's that line when the buyers say, okay, I'm getting into a not-so-pricey housing market anymore, and I'm getting used to higher mortgage rates, so maybe now it's the time to get back in again. Exactly. We'll see. Diana, for now, thanks, our Diana Olick. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 